0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. We have seen a number of these actions in recent years. There's always framed as deterrent actions. Yet their deterrent effect is not entirely self-evident. Certainly, these Shia militia groups are continuing to undertake these attacks at a significant enough pace to warrant these sorts of military responses. And the United States has, in response, particularly since the January 2020 killing of Qasem Soleimani, Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commander who was killed in a U.S. drone strike, along with a number of senior officials from one of these militias, Qatab Hezbollah, you know, Since then, we have seen the security situation in Iraq deteriorate substantially, that combined with the global pandemic and perhaps some progress in the counter ISIL offensive, counter-Islamic state offensive, has led the United States and its coalition partners to significantly reduce their presence in Iraq, both troop-level-wise and in terms of the facilities they maintain, to be a little more secure. And so I, I think there are good questions to be raised here, saying how effective is this strategy of deterrent? Now, I think probably many people in the Department of Defense and elsewhere would say there is a real value here. We are undermining capabilities and putting limits on what these groups are willing to attempt to undertake, even if we can't stop it altogether. And that may be right. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June
1: 30th, 2021. Early Monday morning, the U.S. carried out airstrikes in Iraq and Syria against two Iranian-backed militia groups. The strikes raise a whole host of diplomatic, legal, and policy questions. To break them all down, I sat down with Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare's executive editor and a senior fellow in the National Security Law program at Columbia Law School. Before Lawfare, Scott had also served as the legal advisor for the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. It's the Lawfare podcast, June 30th. What to make of U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria? All right, so Scott, get us started and just talk a bit about what actually happened over the weekend. So who was targeted and where did the strikes take place?
0: Sure. This past Sunday, we saw what is, by most measures at least, I think the second major offensive military operation of the Biden administration in the form of a series of airstrikes on facilities that are used, at least according to the Defense Department, by Iran-backed militias. The two groups they specifically name, although it implies it's not limited to these groups, are Qatab Hezbollah and Katab Sayyid al-Shahada. Um, these are two groups that were targeted actually in the last set of airstrikes, the Biden administration pursued in February. They're both Iran-backed militia groups, or widely believed to be Iran-backed militia groups, primarily operating in Iraq, but also in Syria. Uh, one, Qatab Hezbollah, has been kind of a longtime player. They both really have for many years in Iraq. The other one is associated with the Badr organization, which is kind of a broader uh, militia and political movement in Iraq. And the airstrikes targeted these facilities on the logic that they were involved in a number of recent UAV attacks, uh, meaning unmanned aerial vehicle attacks. In Iraq on U.S. facilities. And this has become a point of concern, at least according to media reports among U.S. officials recently, because these attacks were using explosives laden small drones that were able to fly at an altitude and that operated at a scale that made them very hard to detect. By the security systems that are usually used to help secure U.S. military and diplomatic facilities in Iraq from rocket attacks, which is the most conventional and most common form of attack that uh, various militias and Iran-backed militias and groups like Islamic State have taken on U.S. facilities in Iraq. These three airstrikes took place, two on facilities in Syria, which is very similar to what the Biden administration did in its February airstrikes. But what's most notable is the third one took place on a facility within Iraq, close to the border. The statement from the Biden administration is very careful to emphasize the border with Syria, I should say, but nonetheless within Iraq. And that's notable because it crosses a bit of a red line. The Trump administration did take military action against various Iran-backed militias in both Syria and Iraq, but it was highly controversial when it did so. The Iraqis then, as they have now, condemned that action as a violation of their sovereignty because they had not given their consent to those military operations. Uh, And so the Biden administration's decision to take that step now kind of puts its operations in Iraq and Syria against these militias in a slightly different zone, one that is in greater tension uh, with the Iraqi government, and that poses new challenges to the bilateral relationship there. And just give us a a bit of a sense of timeline here. So when
1: did the, the strikes on the US military bases occur? How fast moving a situation is this?
0: As far as we know, the strikes occurred uh, over what was in the evening here on the East Coast, so in the middle of the night, what would have probably be Monday morning, I suppose, uh, Iraq time. They appear to be kind of planned attacks, uh, meaning they are not necessarily – being claimed that they were intended to stop an imminent uh, in the conventional uses of use of the term that term has a certain legal technical usage which we can get to in a second but in the conventional sense and that there weren't you know drones on the runway ready to launch but the defense department has asserted that these sites had been involved in prior attacks and were part of a pattern of attacks involving these UAVs on U.S. facilities, and that these attacks were intended to disrupt those operations and to deter them moving forward. So there was a little bit of, obviously, selection on the part of U.S. forces. They chose to operate, as they often do, in the middle of the night. You know, they chose these facilities very specifically. They said that they're specifically calibrating their attacks in a way to minimize the risk of further escalation. It's not sure what exactly that means. Uh, Perhaps they were trying to limit the casualties that would result from it, something to that effect. But obviously it wasn't that this was necessarily a a moment where they were responding to some attack that was immediately incoming, but instead that they were responding to a broader pattern of action and that that was the effort, what they were trying to deter and prevent is any number of future attacks that may come from these same actors and these same resources that they were targeting.
1: And to what has the the kinetic response been from, from opposing forces in Iraq or in Syria? Well, so far, we've seen a
0: couple of different reactions. In Syria, there were a number of attacks on a facility where US forces were operating within Syria um, that have been tied back to these most recent rocket attacks. And it's notable that Qatab al-Sayed al-Shahada actually has said that they, who, who I should note claims to have lost four personnel who were killed in these rocket attacks. Had said that they see this as a sign of open war between them and the United States, and we're going to respond militarily. And this may be part of that. Although I'm not sure if those attacks have been clearly tied back to that group at this stage or not yet. Within Iraq, we haven't seen a, a military response as of yet that I'm aware of. Um, what we have seen is a diplomatic response. Uh, the Iraqi government did come out and say, specifically, a spokesperson, a kind of military spokesperson within the prime minister's office, and the current prime minister of Iraq, Prime Minister Abdemis, is, is, is seen as some. Somebody who is a former intelligence official is usually favorably inclined towards the U.S.-Iraq relationship and has been fairly proactive in trying to rein in uh, various Iran-backed militias in Iraq, although largely unsuccessfully, and is in a very difficult political position with them, but then nonetheless somebody who is On the Iraqi political spectrum, relatively favorable to the U.S.-Iraq relationship. Nonetheless, a spokesperson in his office said this is a violation of international law and a violation of Iraqi sovereignty and is something that we think is a problem is putting Iraq in this position of being a battleground for attacks between Iran and the United States, which it has repeatedly said before, it is not interested in being in that position. Then the on the street in Iraq, we saw uh, a number of groups get together and organize large-scale public demonstrations around a funeral for the four individuals who were allegedly killed in these attacks, processing through parts of Baghdad and other parts of Iraq, that kind of demonstrating popular support for these groups, um, at least in certain quarters of Iraq, and underscoring some of the... Reactions, negative reactions that uh, many Iraqis have to U.S. military operations in Iraq that take place, particularly where they are not authorized by the Iraqi government and not done in coordination with them.
1: Yeah, so we'll move back to the the diplomatic side of things later. But first, this being lawfare, we can talk about the legal side. So, Scott, what is the the public facing legal theory on the domestic side under which these strikes were conducted, and and what are the the documents or the statements where where that was articulated?
0: Sure. Well, we actually, as of the time of recording this, have not yet seen what we would expect to see for an attack like this. That's a 48 hours war powers report. That is a, a type of war powers report that the executive branch is required to give to Congress within 48 hours of an event like this where it relies upon constitutional authority, when it when it it doesn't rely on statutory authority, perhaps I should say. And so we would expect that to come forward shortly. I I suspect it'll be posted on the White House's website anytime imminently. They're not actually required to release those publicly, um, but they generally do as a matter of practice. The Trump administration was a little less consistent about that, but other recent administrations have been fairly consistent in publishing them on the White House website, and the Biden administration has been so far. And so we expect to see that with a fuller statement. That said, the Defense Department did come out with a pretty robust statement shortly after the attacks were reported that laid out the legal foundation for that. Um, and what they said is that their domestic legal basis for acting for undertaking this action was Article II of the Constitution, the president's authority as commander-in-chief of the armed forces and under the executive power, the kind of broad scope of executive authority that the executive branch has traditionally claimed under different parts of Article II, particularly in the realm of foreign relations and national security. This is itself not a... Controversial proposition for those who buy into the executive branch's view of Article II authority. Several presidential administrations of both parties have asserted that the president can use his or her Article II authority to defend U.S. military diplomatic personnel, other U.S. citizens as well, and facilities overseas from hostile attacks, at least insofar as Congress hasn't specifically restricted that sort of action, which it hasn't done here, and where the nature, scope, and duration, uh, which is kind of a term of art, of the military tax is of a a certain type that falls below the threshold of what is considered a war for constitutional purposes. What exactly that means is uh, a a kind of sophisticated, complicated test to go into that has various factors, but... Long and short of it, it essentially means a more limited armed conflict. And this would seem to qualify compared to what prior presidential administrations have done against a a limited series of uh, rocket attacks is relatively small compared to certain other actions that prior administrations have taken under Article 2 and claimed did not hit that threshold of a war for constitutional purposes. So in that regard, it's not at all surprising that the Biden administration would claim to be able to act under Article 2 in this way. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. That doesn't mean that there isn't room for people to disagree with them. And th- indeed, there are people who who certainly do, uh, including some in Congress. But it's acting in a manner consistent with what the executive branch has asserted for a, a fair amount of time now and across both administrations, certainly back to the Obama administration, where obviously many of the, the same people In office right now, we're in similar positions working on these issues in the Obama administration. What's notable about this domestic legal justification, if anything, is that it doesn't make reference to either the 2001 AUMF, which was enacted after the 9-11 attacks and relates to Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and kind of various affiliated forces uh, of them, at least as interpreted by the executive branch, and the 2002 AUMF, which specifically relates to Iraq and was enacted prior to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. The Trump administration had argued that both of those documents actually authorized the United States to take military action against any third party that threatens U.S. forces or foreign partner forces. Where those forces are collaborating on an effort authorized by the AMF. So specifically in Iraq, they argue that well, when a a Shia militia, a third party not covered by these AUMFs necessarily, although there's an argument there about 2002 AUMF which we can get into, they say because the United States and Iraqi forces and coalition forces that had suffered from these rocket attacks were involved in a counter Islamic State mission, which is the purpose for which they are in Iraq with Iraq's permission, with Iraq's consent. The 2001 and 2002 AUMF, which authorized that counter ISIL mission, also authorized the United States to act in defense of those forces against third parties like the Iran-backed militias. And that's what the Trump administration said: when we act against these militias, we are acting underneath the statutory authority. They also said Article Two qualified as well. What this means in practice isn't. 100% clear with th- what the difference is in terms of scope. I don't think we have a real clear sense what that scope of sc- what's often called collective self-defense authority is under the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs. It's not super defined because it was a fairly novel theory that was primarily advanced by the Trump administration, although it has some roots in certain actions by the Obama administration toward- towards the end of its time in office. But uh, you know, certainly uh, the move back to Article 2 seems to be a signal uh, and reliance strictly on artic- Article 2 seems to be a signal that Biden administration not might not buy any- into that interpretation of the AUMS, or at least doesn't want to publicly rely on it. Now, the Biden administration hasn't done what we would expect it to do if it formally rejected that argument, which is that they should, under very uh, related reporting, statutory reporting regimes, report to Congress a change in the legal and policy frameworks that it applies in uh, making these sorts of legal decisions about the use of force, because the Trump administration had publicly asserted that theory as part of those reports. So we haven't seen the official change yet, but the fact that they're not relying on it seems to suggest maybe a movement away from it or a, a resistance to, Re-emphasizing that particular interpretation of the AMS.
1: Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So, Scott, first, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation this is the second sort of major overseas kinetic operation, the first of which was in late February. And unless I'm misremembering, they used roughly the same logic, right, to to justify that strike. Is that right?
0: That's exactly right. I mean, that strike really looked a lot like these. It used the same domestic legal justification, the same more or less the same international legal justification. And again, it targeted very similar entities. There it was a facility associated with Kitab Hezbollah and uh Kittab Assay shahada with them specifically, and it was tied to rocket attacks. And there was a little bit of a question about the relationship between this facility and the rocket attacks there that's particularly relevant for potential international law analysis. But nonetheless, there was that acclaimed nexus between that site and these these groups. Here, it's a similar argument. Again, the big distinction is the fact that they then pulled in this facility in Iraq as well. But other than that, this looks a lot like what happened in February.
1: And what what do you think from your perspective what are the advantages why might the Biden administration want to reach for the the inherent article 2 justification instead of pointing to either AUMF is it sort of a is it an executive power argument is it something to the effect of you know the Biden administration has made murmurings that they're interested in AUMF repeal and this is acting consistent with that what do you think
0: I think I think what you just noted is one definitely one possible uh, reason that they may have adopted this view. The AUMFs, the, the executive branch's uses of the AUMFs across several administrations now has become increasingly controversial, uh, particularly where they have been interpreted in ways that do not square very readily with original congressional intent, or really with the statutory language. Uh, the executive branch has traditionally and knows it often can get away with really pushing the envelope and how it reads these things, precisely because the courts are often very resistant intervening in disagreements between Congress and the executive branch about how these sorts of statutes should be read in the national security space. And so what we've seen is this expansion of Particularly the 2001 AUMF, but also the 2002 AUMF more recently by the Trump administration, to incorporate new targets that surprise people and is used to justify new operations that clearly were not in the anticipation of Congress when they enacted them. And that's become very politically controversial, particularly among, well, actually, kind of the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, but more relevantly, perhaps for the Biden administration, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and. People on both sides of that, as well as a number of people in the political center, are now moving towards reforming both of those statutes. And the first step, which has already taken place actually earlier this month, is for many repealing the 2002 AUMF. Relating to Iraq, which is not actually directly relied on exclusively for any ongoing military operations, the counter-ISIL mission is supported by both the 2001 and 2002 AMF. So you can take the 2002 AMF out of that picture, and it doesn't it doesn't interrupt those operations at all. The House of Representatives actually voted with bipartisan support to repeal the 2002 AMF earlier this month. The Biden administration kind of came in late in the game, the day of the vote, uh, I recall, perhaps the day before, with a statement of an administration policy endorsing repeal, basically saying what I just said, that this isn't going to impact current US operations negatively and that it's basically a good uh, housekeeping measure, that Congress shouldn't leave these authorizations on the books. That could be used and abused in different unexpected ways moving forward. That's the subtext, at least. I don't know if they quite came out and said that. And so the Biden administration, I think, may have anticipated that move in February and here certainly would be in a difficult position potentially if it came out and relied on the 2002 AUMF even after it said it should repeal it. And so there's that sort of political dynamic there. I also think you know, it's quite possible that a number of the lawyers in the Biden administration genuinely see this collective self-defense interpretation as stretching the envelope on the AUMFs a little bit too far, and in ways that might be a little bit problematic. Certainly, I I think actually a lot of people would accept that the president has Article II authority, certainly defend US forces from attack. Uh, And there's a good argument, at least under how the executive branch reads Article II to say that the president would probably have authority to use military force, at least of a limited nature, to defend allied forces uh, from outside attack. Relying on the AOMF isn't strictly necessary in these cases, and it primary effect is actually to take away transparency by getting around these reporting requirements that it would otherwise apply. So you know it, it might be as a more kind of legal policy angle to say, this is a better way to do this and serves our other policy interests in this sort of situation more squarely.
1: And what has the, the congressional response been to this so far?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, Congress is very busy with a number of items right now, and this hasn't gotten quite as strong or as vocal response in all camps as uh, certain prior actions uh, have had, including the strikes in February, I don't think. Um, But we have seen a number of people primarily on, uh, at least most vocally, among Democrats actually, saying that this is part of a trend that they continue to find concerning, that the president, while they support the president acting in defense of U.S. personnel and U.S. military troops. I don't think any member of Congress is going to come out against that. They say it's a problem that they don't appear to have coordinated with Congress or sought authorization from Congress in advance before doing this. And perhaps the most targeted critique actually came from Senator Chris Murphy, who said that, look, this is one of several of a series of these sorts of strikes against these Iran-backed militia groups, or at least allegedly Iran-backed militia groups in Iraq. That we've seen basically since December 2019, when the Trump administration started taking these sorts of actions. And he said, at a certain point, when we see a whole pattern of these, doesn't it rise to a level of hostilities, a pattern of hostilities that under the War Powers Resolution requires Congress to authorize it, or else the 60-day clock that the War Powers Resolution imposed will run, the executive branch will eventually kind of run out of authority. I think most people in the executive branch probably don't buy that interpretation. Uh, I think they would say that these are isolated incidents, that each that none of which are sustained enough uh, or continual enough to kick the 60-day clock collectively. I think many of them would also argue, frankly, that the president has a constitutional authority to defend U.S. troops. Uh, that can't clearly be limited by Congress by statute. Um, that's a controversial point, but certainly there are some people who maintain that view. But I think the key point here is that you know if Congress wants that to be the view the executive branch is going to take, it clearly isn't the one now. It hasn't been the one traditionally, and it's probably going to require further legislative action on the part of Congress. But nonetheless, there are people in Congress who Voice those concerns and say, "Look, this is exactly the sort of scenario where we need to see the executive branch coordinating more closely with Congress and perhaps ultimately get congressional authorization." So, let's say Scott,
1: you are yourself in Congress now. Or you're a congressional staffer. What are the types of things that you want to know from the administration about what happened? What are what does this teach you in terms of stuff that you might want to push? What, what are what are the lessons from this?
0: Well, I think the big question for a member of Congress to think about here is what this says about the direction of U.S. military activities in Iraq and Syria. We have seen a number of these actions in recent years. There's always framed as deterrent actions, yet their deterrent effect is not entirely self-evident. Certainly, these Shia militia groups are continuing to undertake these attacks at a significant enough pace to warrant these sorts of military responses. And the United States has, in response, particularly since the January 2020 killing of Qasem Soleimani, Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commander who was killed in a U.S. drone strike, along with a number of senior officials from one of these militias, Qatab Hezbollah, you know, Since then, we have seen the security situation in Iraq deteriorate substantially, that combined with the global pandemic and perhaps some progress in the counter-ISIL offensive, counter-Islamic state offensive, has led the United States and its coalition partners to significantly reduce their presence in Iraq, both troop level-wise and in terms of the facilities they maintain, to be a little more secure. And so I, I think there are good questions to be raised here, saying how effective is this strategy of deterrent? Now, I think- Probably many people in the Department of Defense and elsewhere would say there is a real value here. We are undermining capabilities and putting limits on what these groups are willing to attempt to undertake, even if we can't stop it altogether. And that may be right. But it does mean that if there's an effort to move towards a solution to this where our U.S. military and diplomatic personnel are not going to be under this level of threat indefinitely the solution is going to have to be go far beyond this military strategy alone, um, which does not seem likely to be able to uproot these groups that have very strong domestic support bases in Iraq and a a lot more freedom to operate there. It's going to have to be part of a bigger diplomatic strategy that's going to include strengthening the central government Iraq's ability to rein in these groups to the extent you can. And that is also going to fit in trying to build a relationship perhaps with Iran, where it no longer feels the incentive to support these sorts of activities by groups that are, are widely seen as proxies to them or something close to proxies of theirs. So that's the main question I think I would have for Congress to say, how does what this is happening now, this potentially very controversial military action that could have real consequences for the US-Iraq relationship um, by acting in Iraqi territory without its consent, how does that fit into this broader picture and a broader strategy that can actually bring us success in securing the U.S. presence in Iraq and in the broader region.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation
1: is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And so on the international law side, what's the legal theory for why this is justifiable?
0: Sure. This one's a tricky one. You know, the the Biden administration says very clearly, we're acting in self-defense here because these facilities we've targeted were involved in these patterns of attacks against us. And we have reason to believe that they will be again in the future and that they will be used as part of attacks and that by acting in this way, we have prevented those attacks to some degree. Almost everyone agrees uh, that international law, and particularly the UN Charter, which has an express exception to the usual prohibition it imposes on the use of force between states, has an express exception for cases of what it calls the inherent right of self-defense. And almost everyone accepts that that right extends to the ability of states to act against imminent threats of of armed attack against them. The question then becomes, well, what does imminence mean? What does an armed attack mean? And then also those responses are supposed to be necessary and proportional. What does that mean in practice in these cases? Many in the international community, many international law scholars, uh, in many cases, the International Court of Justice at least has some opinions moving in this direction. Um, Many other states have a pretty narrow view of this exception, um, where they say, no, in fact, like these things are supposed to be really cases where you are acting just in response to a strike that is really incoming, and you're only supposed to be acting in a way that matches the level of violence to the extent you need to to prevent that attack and going no further. And it would be Perhaps difficult to square this sort of action with that model because, again, this is anticipating to some extent further attacks based on this past pattern of activity. But the United States, to its credit perhaps, uh, or at least to to the credit of its consistency, has maintained a different view pretty reliably for the last few decades across a number of administrations of this idea of self-defense, seeing it more broadly, basically arguing that the a state has a right to act any time another foreign entity, a non-state actor or a state actor, attacks it or attempts to use you know, violence against it, and that it can respond in a way necessary to prevent future attacks or future continuations of patterns of attacks, and that the question of necessity needs to be balanced against what's necessary to disrupt those attacks. On that scale, this attack becomes, I think, much more easier to square with a view of international law. So similar in a way to the Article 2 argument I don't think it's surprising that Biden administration would reach this conclusion that this is consistent with international law because it is consistent with how the executive branch over several administrations has viewed international law. But again, I think you're going to find people in the international community and elsewhere who say, no, in fact, this isn't consistent with those particular principles of international law because they have that sort of narrower view. The other international law question, this is actually the real tricky one, is, again, goes back to what to make this strike different from the February strike. And that is this question of acting on Iraq's territory without its consent. That is usually something that is prohibited by international law. Uh, You're not supposed to take military action on another state's sovereign territory without its consent. But the United States has advanced a pretty controversial theory, but nonetheless one that it has relied on and several of its military allies have have relied on a a number of times now, basically saying that, well, where a state is unable or unwilling to rein in the threat posed to another state by an armed group within its territory The United States or another state that's threatened by that armed group can act against it without violating international law as it relates to that state's sovereignty. This unable and willing theory, again, it's fairly controversial, but it's what the United States as coalition allies have relied on to pursue military action against the Islamic State in Syria, which it does without the permission of the Assad regime. And so... We haven't seen the Biden administration actually invoke this theory expressly, and we actually never saw the Trump administration invoke it expressly uh, after December 2019 when it started taking action in Iraq without the Iraqi government's consent. But it seems strongly implied in this case that these administrations, the United States has reached the conclusion that... That the Iraqi government very well may be unable or unwilling to address the threat posed by these Iran-backed militias to U.S. personnel, and that's the international legal basis under which they are acting. An alternative theory could view those armed groups, those militias, as actually extensions of the Iraqi state itself, and might have somewhat more dire implications for what the you know current state of war is between the United States and Iraq, because actually these militias, um, while they operate pretty independently, undertake a lot of criminal activity often act in ways that are, you know, contrary to the interests of the Iraqi government, even targeting sometimes the Iraqi military facilities or, you know, uh, Iraqi law enforcement agencies. They nonetheless actually are formally part of the Iraqi armed forces, have been since 2015, at least at a ju- de jure level, although, again, practically they operate independently. So if you were to focus on that, there is even another argument that there might be a, a, another relationship here. But I, I strongly suspect that U.S. lawyers are primarily looking at this through the unable or unwilling lens And are saying, well, look, if the Iraqi government can't do anything about this, and the Iraqi government really has struggled to rein these forces in genuinely, and there's a a well-established track record of that, then the United States can act independently against it. Again, that is an argument that the United States might buy, certainly lawyers within the executive branch, some of their allies might buy that theory as well, but others in the international community are going to have a problem with it. Perhaps most notably... Iraqis seem very unlikely to find it satisfying. And it seems unlikely to persuade them that this wasn't in some way a violation of their sovereignty, which is what they have claimed it is.
1: And so, Scott, this is also right the type of thing that we'll get an answer to whenever that eventual War Powers report comes out, right?
0: Presumably. Now, actually, War Powers reports don't always include the international legal justification. And actually, I say presumably, but I I strongly suspect whatever we see from the administration actually is going to try and avoid this question of unable or unwilling precisely because it is politically touchy. The 48 hours report isn't required to give a legal basis uh, the international legal basis, excuse me, for military action. It actually just has to cover the domestic legal basis. So there may be nothing there. And I'm not aware, again, of the Trump administration or the Biden administration having previously disclosed that it's made this sort of determination. So I'm not sure exactly where we would look to find it if it if it in fact exists. But we might see more and more information. Certainly the Biden administration has advanced part of its international legal justification in its Department of Defense statement we've seen so far, it said, again, that it acted pursuant to self-defense. It's made pretty clear references to ideas of necessity and proportionality in there, making clear that it was aware of these and has taken these into account in how it framed this attack. And so maybe we'll see more on that front, but I'm not 100% sure. We'll have to wait and see. And so let's move to the the sort of policy side of
1: things. So before we get into the diplomatic questions. Walk me through what is, what's the strategic logic of, of undertaking these strikes? What exactly, in your view, do you think the Biden administration is trying to accomplish by doing this?
0: Well, that's a really good question. I mean, they say they did this strike to deter and disrupt these UAV strikes, um, which I think there is every reason to believe, and certainly media reporting has suggested, are a real source of concern for the security of military and diplomatic personnel in Iraq. So that has two parts of it. One, you have to ask, well, were these facilities actually being used for this? Do they provide a necessary component of those sorts of UAV operations that is now disrupted? Certainly the disrupt suggests that. And deter uh, is a little bit more of a fuzzier concept, saying, is this somehow a cost that we're imposing on these groups that is going to make them less likely to voluntarily undertake this sort of action in the future, even if they have the capability of doing so? Again, I, you know, I think the deterrence question, as as I, as I mentioned earlier, is a tricky question here, because we are still seeing these attacks, although again, perhaps they're not of the severity, the frequency that they might be otherwise absent, these sorts of strikes. A disrupt capability is a much more concrete, factual question. We don't have the intelligence to answer that question. The public doesn't and probably never will or might not. Uh, it seems most likely will not. But the Defense Department presumably does. Uh, and I, I I like to think that, and I would be surprised if they made that sort of assertion without any basis in the record whatsoever. So there probably was some tie between these UAV operations and these facilities, the question is, you know, how much does it disrupt it? Um, You know, are we talking about a one hour delay or a six month uh, interruption in their ability to undertake this? And that factors into whether these strikes make sense from a policy basis and in many cases, whether they're warranted as a legal basis. But those are determinations made within the executive branch, particularly within the military. And so, you know, we don't always have visibility. On them, certainly in real time, or or soon after the fact. Sometimes you get you can dig into it as a historian long after the fact and get some get some ground truth about what was actually happening there, and that may be what we have to wait for. The bigger question, I think, is what made the Biden administration more willing to take the step to act in Iraq that it wasn't willing to take in February? Because there certainly were targets associated with Qatab Hezbollah and probably with a closer association with some of the rocket attacks Qatab Hezbollah had undertaken against or is believed to have been undertaken against U.S. facilities in Iraq within Iraq. Again, there was a little bit of a debate among people. Look at this saying, well, how much did this site really have to do with those strikes? And that arguably weakened the legal case a little bit, certainly weakened the policy case. But the Biden administration chose not to do that, presumably because it wanted to preserve its relationship with the Iraqi government and avoid doing things that were going to be seen as a violation of its sovereignty. Here, it's willing to push a little further in doing that and take that risk. And that risk is real and has already manifested. Again, we've already seen what people see as a fairly pro-U.S. prime minister come out, or at least his office come out and, and condemn this as a violation of Iraqi sovereignty. And he may very well will be under even more pressure from constituencies within Iraq to accelerate uh, what has been so far a fairly gradual reduction in the U.S. military presence in Iraq. That might complicate, you know, counter ISIS missions, might complicate other U.S. strategic objectives in the region uh, and therefore come with a real cost. So it's a balancing act. You know, the Biden administration has to say, well, how far can we push the Iraqi government without it actually feeling compelled to, to really wind things down and l- limit their cooperation with us in ways that we find detrimental on the counter ISIS or other strategic fronts? And then what are the benefits of this strike? In terms of its impact on this UAV capability. And then you have to bring in the third variable, which is US relations with Iran itself, because of course, all this is happening against the backdrop of negotiations, which are still being very hard fought, uh, and have seemed to be at a standstill at points. And then we see signs of progress and another standstill between the United States and Iran about re-entering the Iran nuclear deal that President Trump withdrew from, or some, some successor arrangement. You know, we have also seen recent Iranian elections that have brought to the head of uh, the Iranian government, a figure seen as a hardliner by Many accounts, although I don't know if we have a really firm grasp of exactly his views on these foreign policy issues uh, and where exactly he falls on them, yet certainly from, from practice as he's obviously just entered office. And so you know, there's a lot of different variables in the air that the Biden administration is weighing out and making this decision. And it's a very hard decision. and Many of them are difficult factors to weigh with any sorts of precision. I think the most we can say is that Um, You know, the Biden administration very clearly was trying to frame this as a very limited act. They said this is just one facility near the Syrian border. We really are doing this because it's tied to these UAV strikes. They're they're trying to, as much as they can, I think, kind of signal to the Iraqi government, look, and to the Iraqi people, perhaps more importantly, this was something that we really did out of necessity. And because we've been pushed this far by these militias that are causing as many problems for Iraqis as they are for Americans— so you, you must understand why we do this and trying to make their case there, and hopefully we'll see more of that on the diplomatic front, making the case why this was a necessary step and not something the United States wants to make a pattern or do too willy-nilly because there is that tension with Iraqi sovereignty. But we'll have to see. It, it's a really, really complicated uh, set of considerations the United States has to weigh here, and I, I don't envy the policymakers having to balance it all out and figure out the right way forward.
1: There's no perfect analog here, but I'm curious, what type of impact does an incident like this have on both U.S.-Iraqi relations and U.S.-Iran relations, right? There's a lot of different variables to both of those bilateral relationships. How much can one individual incident like this sort of stir things up or or unsettle things?
0: So I think the historical record on this suggests a medium amount, (laughs) kind of a lot in the short term, but less in the long term. In the short term, after the December 2019 strikes the Trump administration pursued, um, which was, again, the first airstrikes along this model um, that the United States pursued, we saw a number of popular protests within Iraq that actually led, many of which I should be noted, were kind of facilitated and supported by some of these militia groups that were involved and believed to be supported by Iran and, and Pursuing these anti-US actions. But we saw these protest movements end up with pretty large-scale demonstrations outside the US Embassy in Iraq. And then with some people actually charging the US Embassy and breaking in, there are those very dramatic videos, which I will say, as somebody who worked at the US Embassy for for a good amount of time, were pretty striking to see, you know, these protesters kicking down the door and pushing against these security guards um, that are there to protect the diplomats inside, in what is By many accounts, probably the United States' most secure embassy overseas and and one of the largest. So, you know, you can see a pretty dramatic short-term action there. Uh, At the same time, you know, the Soleimani killing led the Iraqi parliament to almost immediately, uh, within a matter of days, pass a measure saying, we want U.S. troops out. Now, it did so as a non-binding measure. The Iraqi government has slow-rolled that and basically said, we want the United States to engage in a dialogue about moving itself towards the exits in terms of its military presence in Iraq, but without really insisting on a firm, tight deadline, at least so far. But nonetheless, that is a pretty dramatic uh, you know, short-term solution for a U.S.-Iraq military relationship that had actually been pretty close held and, and I, I think had, had mended a lot over the last few years because of U.S. support in the counter-Islamic state efforts by the Iraqi government. And so you see these big short-term reactions. What we don't see yet is a sign that these sorts of airstrikes are likely to completely undermine uh, the U.S.-Iraq security relationship. Because we do still see the Iraqi government under Prime Minister Khadimi kind of slow rolling or engaging a gradual process about reducing troop presence. And it's not entirely clear the United States and its coalition allies – want to maintain a major troop presence in Iraq or feel it's necessary for counter-Islamic state operations moving forward, especially as the security situation genuinely has deteriorated and as the United States is kind of reorienting itself more towards great power competition with China and Russia and less towards these regional conflicts and regional commitments. And so, you know, it is a question, is a good, very good question to say, well, how much is this one thing going to make a difference? And what I suspect is that we will see a number of sort of public reactions, which we've already started to see in Iraq, and that it is kind of one more, you know, straw on the camel's back to say that eventually we're going to hit some sort of breaking point if we keep pushing this part of, sort of limit and acting in Iraq in a way the Iraqi government feels like it has to oppose. And at some point, they are going. To, it's going. Camel's back is going to break, and they're going to have to publicly say, "We no longer support the U.S. troop presence here. You need to leave now." But is this going to be the the thing that pushes it across that line? I kind of doubt it. I, and it does seem that that relationship is perhaps a little more durable than some people, including me, thought it might have been a year and a half ago. And that the the Biden administration may ca- be counting on the fact that they've still got a little more space they can push before there will be any long term major disruptions there. So
1: as you watch out for for what happens next here, what are things on the sort of diplomatic side that you're, you're eager to see how they pan out, sort of clues to see what the impact of this all might be, things that we should look out for?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of this comes into how the United States tries to frame these actions, both with the sort of Iraqi elites uh, and with the Iraqi public, and perhaps more importantly, how they give, how much framing material they give to the Iraqi elites to be able to sell continued U.S.-Iraq security cooperation to the public and take political pressure off of them to to end it prematurely sooner than the Biden administration wants to see it end. Um, That is going to mean that the United States needs to do what the Biden administration actually has really made a point of very vocally, and that's a sharp contrast with the Trump administration, which is to say, we are here to be partners of uh, the Iraqi government. We are here to support the Iraqi government and to try and keep the Iraqi government able to do what it needs to do to be effective and we're not here to tread on its sovereignty and we're not here as an occupying power or as one of these other you know hostile elements that they're often cast of uh, by opponents of the US presence in Iraq in Iraqi media and other sources and so what we really need to see is what that sort of diplomatic engagement looks like and how the United States can shape that message it's not easy in part because the United States I think a lot of Iraqis have very instinctually, distrusting perspective of the United States, and that the United States is constantly trying to overcome that barrier. And it's part of the reason, and it just doesn't have the same cultural and historical connections that um, many of these other groups do with different parts of Iraq, including some of these Iran-backed militias, which do have ties to local communities and media, and to some extent Iran does as well, that just put them in a better position to shape those sorts of public perceptions. But there are little things the United States can do, and most of them come back to re-emphasizing that we're here to help the Iraqi government and, you know, putting uh, their money where their mouth is and actually doing it with security assistance, foreign assistance, and a supportive diplomatic posture. And that that's what I would look to see. I would also look to see the Biden administration being very careful in taking these steps moving forward. The Trump administration was very robust in its rhetoric, uh, although, you know, it actually, particularly after the uproar and uh, exchange of hostilities directly with Iran that followed the Soleimani strike, pursued a couple of additional strikes, but was not... You know, doing this at the tempo that some of its rhetoric might have suggested it was willing and interested in doing, and I think we need to see that from the Biden administration. I think that the line, the rhetorical line, they seem to hit here, saying that this is something that was necessary and is not intended to be a sign that this is something we're going to inter- take regularly, is a good one. They need to strike a balance, saying, communicating the message that this is a limited action, something that we are trying to. To the extent we have to do something that's perceived as intruding on Iraqi sovereignty, do it as little as possible because we care about Iraqi sovereignty. And that does mean maybe accepting that there are real limits to how much you can use this tool that if you were just considering military strategy, you may want to pursue more often. So those are the two real variables I think we have to look at moving forward. The third one is going to be the engagement with Iran over the JCPOA. If you make real progress on there and it looks like there is real diplomatic a movement, then all of a sudden Iran's interest, I think, in building hostility with the United States over Iraq, over some of these other fronts, certainly it becomes much more costly because it may come at the cost of progress on the sanctions front, which is something they, I think, very much care about at their national level. And so that's kind of a third front to look at as well. But they all interact in a very complicated way. And again, it's a very difficult balance to strike.
1: And just to wrap up, so these when, when these news items happen, right, their their time that they get in the news cycle is often so brief that I think it it's insufficient time for people to sort of digest and, and process and think about the broader impact of what's happening. So for you, when you think about all that's gone on, what are what are the big takeaways, the big lessons learned, the things that you would hope people can emerge from this with a new perspective on, maybe?
0: Sure. Uh, You know, what I think this really enters in, the thing that this makes this different from prior things that Biden administration has done is what it means for the U.S.-Iraq relationship. And the U.S.-Iraq relationship has been a kind of mainstay, despite for all the problems it's had uh, and continues to have, um, has been a mainstay of the U.S. strategic posture for the region for the last 20 years or so, certainly since the 2003 invasion. And even prior to that, US Iraq relations were a big part of the picture, but in a very different set of dynamics. And so, you know, I think the Biden administration is interested in preserving that more than the Trump administration was. The Trump administration at various times seemed very willing to say, we don't really care about Iraq. Uh, we care much more about putting pressure on Iran, and that's going to be our priority. And the Biden administration, I, I think, I suspect in part because many of the people heading up Middle East policy for the Biden administration are themselves very experienced Iraqians and have spent a lot of time there and have a lot of personal experience there. They really do care, seem to care about the U.S.-Iraq relationship, even as it is probably playing a smaller part in the overall strategic picture of the United States than it might have once. And so I think it's, it's important saying, okay, we see this, what looks like a small difference. It looks like something the United States has done before, but this This is perceived really differently by Iraqis and by the Iraqi government. And it could have major dynamics for that relationship. Then you have to evaluate, okay, well, why is the Biden administration choosing to do this now? What does that tell us about how they prioritize things? Again, I suspect the Biden administration is going to try and reconcile this. They recognize this came at a cost to some of their potential relations with the Iraqi government, but saw it as valuable enough to pursue on other strategic fronts to make that cost worthwhile. And they're just going to try and Mitigate it through diplomatic engagement and other strategies, and, and maybe they'll be successful. Maybe they won't, but I think that's the big factor here. Saying is this going to be a opening to a new line of activity similar what the Trump administration pursued, that could ultimately lead to the you know, end of the U.S.-Iraq relationship that has been at least the type of cooperative relationship over the last several years has been such a major part of our regional strategy? Or is it simply a, a strategic step or probably a tactical step that fits within a broader strategy that's still aiming in that direction? And so as we look at how the Biden administration continues to approach these issues, that's the lens I look at this through, is to say, where is what does this tell us about where Iraq fits in this bigger picture? And to some extent, I think this particular step could end up being a big part of that story, but we'll have to wait to find out to know for sure. And that is all the time we have today. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare
1: Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer today was Hamza Shatou of Goat Rodeo. The podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Howell, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please share the Lawfare podcast on Twitter, on Facebook, or anywhere else. And as always, thanks so much for listening.